Thank you all for reading God's word for us. Uh, Before we dive into the word today, let me take a brief moment to explain our liturgy. As a church, we believe that God speaks through his word. So we not only take time to expound and explain the word of God, which I will do momentarily, but also we take time to read or to hear the word of God read out loud without the interruptions by preachers. And as a people of God, as a proper response of receiving God's holy word is that we say thanks be to God for he has revealed himself through his word. So you might have heard me say that as I go up and down many times, thanks be to God. Might as well make it official. When the word is read out loud, as a humble posture of receiving God's holy word, we respond by saying, thanks be to God. And that wraps our little catechism, little teaching of our liturgy for the day. Uh, Today marks an important Sunday as we continually navigate through, plow through the series in the book of Ephesians. If you remember the first three chapters that we have been studying, it's all about who God is, what he has done, and who we are in him. It's the foundational gospel message that we have been talking about because of Christ's death and resurrection. We are redeemed. We are reconciled to him and to one another. There's no more barriers between Jews and Gentiles. First three chapters, he laid that out. And just like you heard Reverend John Curry brought out the message last Sunday, it's time to pivot to practice. All that to say, so what? We will dive into the chapter four through six next six Sundays. And the question that Apostle Paul is asking, which we will be answering is that what is the role of the church? How can a church really be thriving and mature and flourishing? To Paul, in the first half of Ephesians 4, his answer is that the maturity, flourishing, and thriving of the church happens when the unity marries with the diversity. When the unity and diversity are represented in a local church, there's true sense of maturity, flourishing, and thriving. If I can make a general sweeping statement over here, it's relatively easy for a church to be singular entity hobby horse group. It's relatively easy for the church to create some sort of uniformity by stage of life, by certain political agenda, by certain niche. But it's so much more difficult for the church to be truly united in the name of the Lord because the gospel brings all different walks of people, all different temperaments, all different people that you might not like. But somehow, what Paul calls us, what our Lord calls us that, we shall be one church in him. And that pronounced theme will be abundantly clear. So the three key words as we dive into today's section will be unity, diversity, and maturity that we will see in this section. Might as well, let's dive right in. First, what does it take for the church to be truly mature? Unity in fruit bearing. Verse one through six, unity in fruit bearing. Look how Paul begins this section in verse one. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live life worthy 
of the calling you have received. See the word translated then? Majority of translation translates the word as therefore. It's the same meaning. After all that says and all that Paul has said and done, then, therefore, because of who you are in him, because of what he has done, live worthy of the calling that you have received. Having spent all the time, now Paul is about to move into so what question. But before we do that, can we really take time to understand where Paul is coming from? Think with me. This is not a times of email. This letter was written approximately 8060s, perhaps 62, around that time. 2,000 years ago, there was no such thing as email. You say something and then you want to say more, you send another email or text message. No, it takes time to write. It takes time to even deliver. There are, it's not even a snail mail. It's a sloth mail. It takes forever to get there. There's not even USPS at that time. Well, in fact, USPS isn't that fast. <laughs> but it takes forever for a letter to deliver. But why in the world what we say, so what, Paul? Just tell me what to do. Just spoon feed me. Why in the world does it take so much time to lay out? Why does he so slow in applying? Rather than just saying, be unified, have unity. But let me lay out entire gospel message. Because if we just do something, without really saturating ourselves to the beauty of the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done, this just becomes our willpower. This to-do list just becomes our will. So more than anything, may we continually saturate ourselves. Look at this time when Paul writes this letter at that time. They wrote this letter in a papyrus, which is very thin wooden paper in a long scroll. He literally takes up half of the letter just writing about the simple gospel message and after saying all that spent that much ink in the papyrus now finally it moves into the application in fact he will do that in today's section as well and when you look at paul's theology he always goes back to christology what jesus christ has done that's paul's pattern even in galatians we talked about in Ephesians chapter 2 how christ tore down the wall there's no more barrier between jews and gentile but when you look at Galatians 2, our friend Pete, Peter is hanging out with his friend Jamie, James. Well, he was fine just eating with a Gentile fellowshipping with him, but when his buddy James came over, all of a sudden Peter's withdrawing himself. Paul could have said, just applying the application, that's discrimination, Peter. That's being a racist. Stop that. Is that how Paul goes about it? No. When you read Galatians 2.14, Paul says, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter, and he goes on by saying, a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. He goes on by saying, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What is Paul doing? Rather than just saying, stop being discriminatory. You cannot do that. Paul is saying, remember who you are. Jesus tore down the wall. You're not living according to the gospel. Christ tore down the wall. Now you can fellowship with the Jews and Gentiles. So as we continue to study in our Ephesians, never abandon what we have studied in the first three chapters. We are the people of God. More than asking what would Jesus do, we look back and say, what has Jesus done? 
that flows into what we need to do day by day. Now, having said all that, even Paul way applies it. Look at the word choice he used in verse 1. He says, live worthy of the calling you have received. What does that mean? It's not the calling we have generated. It's what God has done. We have received this calling. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity. Paul does not say make every effort to create the unity. It has been created by God when Christ died on the cross. Now we are reconciled, and it is our job to maintain and preserve this unity. Verse 4, just as, just as you are called, meaning we did not call ourselves, it is God who called us. Verse 7, grace that has been given. We did not achieve or make grace. Grace was extended to us by who? Verse 11, Christ himself gave. It is all what God has done. So therefore, just like our calling is received, not achieved, Christian unity is not something we must achieve or generate, but it's a fact. It's a reality. It's what God has done. Why is this important? Because if unity, if our calling is something that we generate on our own, we get to make up what our calling is, if unity is something that we create on our own, then when we choose disunity, when we do whatever we want, that's okay. We just changed our mind. However, if calling is something that we received by what Christ has done, if unity was created by Christ when he died on the cross by tearing down the wall, then when we create disunity, we are violating God's design. Get that? Our calling is to keep, preserve, maintain this unity that Christ has created by dying on the cross for our sins. And what is he calling us to do today as a church, Chelton? What is this calling that we received? Verse 5 and 6. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all that we may truly be one church. That's what we have been talking about all this time. Now, for the lack of better word, do you see how relevant? And the word, I better have better word than even the word relevant. This letter was written in AD 60s. 2,000 years later, this world is filled with a polarization, division, and Paul is calling, God is calling God's church to be different. Have unity, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. And he shows us how to exactly get there. How do you get there? How do we truly become one? How do we maintain this unity that Christ has created? Verse 2 and 3. What are the characteristics that Paul writes here? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Humble, humility, gentleness, patience, love, peace. In order to preserve the unity that Christ has created for us, it is essential to develop the Christ-like virtues, fruit of the Spirit, in order to enhance and preserve the unity. It is our call, calling that we have received is to cultivate Christ-like virtue, the fruit of the Spirit, in order to maintain and preserve the unity. 
So Chelton, today's message is not for someone who is sitting next to you. Today's message is not for someone who is sitting in front of you. This is not a message you can go like, honey, it's for you. No, it's for me. It's for you. Not somebody else. It's not the children. Listen, this is for you. No, God is calling you. Is your life marked by humility? Is your life really be marked by gentleness? See, humility is neither being nice nor being insecure. Those can masquerade as if it's humility, but true humility, in a sense, it's the carefreeness of yourself. While we are so obsessed, every little thing is about, oh man, how am I being perceived by others? How is my future going to pan out? We trust God's sovereign goodness in our lives, so we are carefree, not careless, but there's, in a sense, liberation from your self-obsession. Is that what marks your life? Or are you constantly all absorbed, worried that your life is not marked by humility? It's all about you. You're so obsessed over how others would perceive you, how you think about yourself, rather than really trusting the goodness of God, how he sees you, how he has redeemed you. If I may borrow the words of our wise friend, C.S. Lewis, when you truly encounter a humble person, when you meet them, the first word that comes out of your mouth will not be the humility. You don't really know what just happened when you sit down with them, but you walk away feeling like, oh, wow, I don't know what just happened, but that person was incredibly interested in me for who I am. Rather than to gaining something out of me, but just for who I am, that person cares for me because that person has the carefree attitude of himself. He's not absorbed in within. That should be true humility. Is that what marks your life? Is there a gentleness within you, Chelton? These are key to unity in our church, maintain. But is your life instead marked by abrasiveness? I know it all. Let me get my way. And true gentleness is not being timid. True gentle person knows when to speak up and when to be silent. There's faithfulness in that person. Is your life marked by patience? Or are you quick, prone to anger and temper? This long-suffering quality is that what marks your life. And do you really love one another, Chelton? When we really embody these virtues, there will be true unity. The true, in order to maintain unity, the value is not strength or power, but humility and gentleness. The secret, not exerting your own power for your privilege, but being patient and bearing and caring for one another. So we all are called to bear fruit. There's unity in fruit bearing. This is not for him, not for her. This is not for them. This is for me. This is for you. The Christ has called us. When he died on the cross, he created unity in our church. And when we are not being humble, when we are arrogant, when we are abrasive, there's no gentleness. When there's no patience within you, you will sow division in a church. Remember, if you don't know where to begin, go back to the first three chapters. What Jesus Christ has done, he was marked by humility, gentleness, long-suffering at the cross, and love. Father, forgive them. If Jesus was marked by nothing but humility, we all would have been damned. We all would have been condemned. He could have surely brought down thousand angels, but he long-suffered in love for us. Do you have this kind of fruit of spirit in your life, Chelton? I pray that the Lord will continually convict me because without that, I'll be the one that's sowing the division in a church.
So first key to maturity in a church, that there is unity and fruit bearing that we all bear for. That's what God has called us for. Second, there's diversity in gift sharing. There's diversity. See, in verse 6 to 7, when you look at that, in a sense, they're very cohesive. On the other side, there's a sudden shift there. Let me explain what I mean by that. Verse 6 speaks a lot of Father of us all, who is above all, through all. Then verse 7 moves from all of us to each of us. See that? One God and one Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. See, thus Paul turns from all of us to each of us, and so from the unity to the diversity within a church. Now, you must understand how Paul says grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Great. This is talking about spiritual gifts. As verse 11 talks about, there's pastors, apostles, evangelists to equip all of us, the diverse gifts that is represented in a local church. But see the difference. It says grace, which in Greek word is charis. Christ has apportioned it all. The saving grace that we sang, oh, saving grace, how sweet the sound. The saving grace, charis, is the same for all. Christ died for us. But the gifts that Christ gives, Christ apportions to it, while grace is charis, gifts is charisma. Charisma. So while the saving grace is the same for all, that Christ died for us, and we all are called bear the fruit, while the charis is the same, charisma, Serving grace is different from one person to another person. While the charis may be same, that we all are called barefoot through his grace that he has redeemed us, charisma that Christ apportioned is different from person to a person. And sometimes we don't like that. But what is this gift all about? Verse 12, to equip his people for the works of service. So there is difference between saving grace and serving grace. Serving grace that God has given you, how he has uniquely gifted you, is not for you to hoard, but for the flourishing of whole church. How did this come about? When you read verse 8 through 10, it's pretty discombobulating. You're like, what is going on? Christ descended to lower, low earth and he ascended it and all. What's happened is when he descended, he's talking about his death on the cross where Chorus was extended. Through its descension, we have been redeemed. His saving grace has been extended. But when he ascended to heaven, just like the, when the king, the victor, wins the battle, he distributes the gifts to his people, his soldiers. Just like that, when Christ ascends in victory and resurrection, now the saving grace, charis that redeemed us, now is extending charisma, giving gifts to each people, prize to each people of God in order, for the, to, in order for, to build up one another. But somehow, we like that we all should bear the fruit, but sometimes we really don't like that each person are so different in our gathering, don't we? If I can make a joke about it, I mean, we can't even get along between thinkers and doers. We cannot even get along. Some people are strong. Room temperature should be 67. Another one says 73. Which one is right? We have so many different preferences. But do you see that Paul's image that he's using here is the body? It's the body. If the one part of body suffers, all suffer. 
Your hand exists not only for your hand, for your whole body. I mean, when your hand suffers, entire body suffers. I felt that. A month ago, I was working out. I was at the gym. I was doing clean and jerk. If you don't know what that is, you lift up and put it up. But you're supposed to catch with your hand and your shoulder. But I was doing like seven, eight sets, so my body got tired, so I got lazy. So rather than catching with my whole body, I just caught it with my wrist. And of course, it snapped back a little bit. Ever since I cannot work out, my whole body is suffering. Calories humiliating. It's all happening. When one body suffers, entire body suffers. But somehow, we don't like that, oh, you're like that? Oh, I'm like that? You're different? We hate differences. As much as love unity, we don't recognize diversity of gift that God has given us. There was a pastor walking across a bridge one day, and there was a man on the edge of the bridge who was about to jump off the bridge. So the pastor says, don't jump. The man says, why shouldn't I jump? The pastor said, you have so much to live for. The man says, like what? The pastor says, well, are you religious or are you atheist? man says, I'm religious. The pastor said, that's a good place to start. Are you Jewish or are you Christian? The man said, I'm Christian. Pastor said, I'm a Christian pastor. Look, we already have commonality. We have hope. Okay, are you Christian? Are you Catholic or are you Protestant? The man says, well, I'm a Protestant. And the pastor replies, I'm a Protestant pastor as well. There's hope. He continues, are you Episcopalian or are you Baptist? The man says, I'm a Baptist. The pastor says, it's amazing. I'm a Baptist pastor too. He said, are you Baptist Church of God or are you Baptist Church of the Lord? The man says, I'm Baptist Church of God. The pastor Pastor said, it's a miracle. I'm Baptist Church of God as well. He said, are you Baptist Church of God original or are you Baptist Church of God reformed? The man said, I'm Baptist Church of God reformed. The pastor, pastor said, this is providential because I'm a pastor of a Baptist Church of God reformed. He said, are you Baptist Church of God reformed reformation of 1879 or are you Baptist Church of God reformed reformation of 1915? And the man said, I'm Baptist Church of God reformed in 1915, to which pastor said, die, you heretic scum, and he pushed him <laughs> off the bridge. <laughs> well, hopefully I'm not that pastor. <laughs> we hate every little minor differences, don't we? Rather than really recognizing and acknowledging, celebrating different, perhaps a little bit of preference, inclination, gift that he has given us, we fight over every single detail. Even the diverse gift is for unity. What does verse 13 say? Until we all reach unity in the faith. But we fight over every single difference. Chelton, this joke that I shared about this Baptist past, this joke about the bridge and the pastor, was actually a joke that my pastor, Craig, shared on my ordination service. And he said, Jen, remember, unity is worth it in a church, and that unity begins with recognizing the diversity within. Never forget that in your ministry. That was May of 2012. I still remember. Shelton, unity is worth it. Recognize the different people, a different inclination, different temperament, for the flourishing of a whole body. A clergyman of England, a vegan robber, said, 
Love for those who are like us is ordinary. Love for those who are unlike us is extraordinary. Love for those who dislike us is revolutionary. And that is the kind of love our Lord God calls us to be truly one church. Children, is that what marks us? We all bear fruit. There's humility, gentleness, there's patient love in a way that you conduct your life. And yet you don't hold the gift that God has given just for your own sake. You share it for the flourishing of a whole body. When those two marry one another, third point, verse 14 through 16, there's true maturity. What does it say? Verse 14. Then, when we do all then, we will no longer be infants. So when the unity in fruit bearing, marriage, diversity in gift sharing, there will be true maturity in a local church, true flourishing, true thriving. So unity in fruit bearing that we all are called to, that by the saving grace, charis, we all are called to bear fruit, plus diversity in gift sharing. Each of you are equipped very different. Share that for the flourishing of the body. When those to marry one another, there will be true maturity and flourishing in a local church. Now, those two must dwell together, but we tend to elevate one or another. Uh, what does Paul say in verse 15? Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect in the mature body in Christ. So when we truly have both together in the Christ-like virtue, we will be a mature body of Christ. But I am afraid, and I must address this concern of mine, that especially in the days and time we live in, we tend to overvalue gift at the expense of fruit of the Spirit. Perhaps what I'm about to share will hit pretty close home in our body, Chelton. Let me show you what I mean by that. If God can use your donkey to speak, God can still use the sinner to extend his glory and kingdom. In other words, even though don't mistake your gift as your maturity, your gift that God has given you must marry the character. Otherwise, when you just operate based on your gift without the fruit of the Spirit, you will create this unity. Paul talks about teachers, apostles, pastors. Let me use myself as a guinea pig. Listen to what Tim Keller says in his book, Preaching. Gifts and talents can operate when the speaker is spiritually immature or even when the preacher's heart is far from God. If you have a gift of teaching, for example, the classroom situation draws out your gift and you may be very effective but that can happen in the absence of a strong walk with God. Gifts will usually be mistaken for spiritual maturity, not just by the audience, but even by the speaker. If you find the people attending eagerly to your address, you will take this as evidence that God is pleased with your heart and your level of intimacy with him when he may not be at all. If anything, we Christians living today are in greater danger of this misperception than any other time in history, for our era has been called the age of technique. No civilized society has put more emphasis on result, skills, and charisma, or less emphasis on character, reflection, and depth. This is a major reason why so many of the most successful ministers have a moral failure or lapse. 
their prodigious gifts have masked the lack of grace operation at work in their lives. I pray that that will ring some sobering alarm within you. We tend to overvalue gift at the expense of the true spiritual fruit we are bearing. So I speak to myself, when I overvalue my gift without fruit of the Spirit, I will create this unity. And I pray that my, our, may, my giftedness, may your giftedness never exceed your character, spiritual fruit that you are bearing before the Lord. And these two must go hand in hand. And now let me extend that to you. Perhaps some of you are very gifted. Perhaps you are recognized for your leadership skill in your work. Perhaps you are very smart. You have a PhD after your name. Perhaps some of you are just really popular at school. Always kids just flock among you. You have the charisma. And you might think, oh, wow, look at me. I, everything's going really well. I must be very mature before the Lord. No, don't mistake that. It's a gift that God has given you. That does not mean you're necessarily mature. And may your life really marked by the humility, gentleness. May your giftedness, the charisma, must marry with charis. Charisma must marry with charis, the saving grace that humbled you. Otherwise, you will create havoc. You will create disunity in the church. Once I saw a t-shirt in Dallas when I was there, this lawnmower guy was mowing the lawn, and then he said he was wearing shirts saying, I have a PhD, I'm a doctor, I know, I know everything, ask me anything, I have an answer. I know it's mouthful, isn't it? Just because you have a doctor, that does not mean you know anything and everything. Just because you're recognized and very well successful in the work field, that does not mean you're mature in the Lord. So may our giftedness that God has given us marry our character. Without that, you will create, I will create this unity in a church. So what is the end game of it all? How do you get there? Verse 15 and 16. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him. Who is the head? That is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together. The head of the church is neither you nor I. It is Christ. When we submit ourselves to the lordship of our Jesus Christ and our Savior and Lord, there will be humility. There will be gentleness. It is not our gifting that holds the church together. It is Christ. He is the head that holds our church together. So what are the gifts that God has given you? Neither elevate that nor hoard that. When you just elevate that, you will run with bullish style in your life. I know it all. Just follow my way. This is my will. Everyone should have a similar gifting as I am. Everyone should have similar preference as I am. That will destroy the church. Neither, nor just don't consume the gift for yourself. Your body exists for the flourishing of it all. Share the flourishing of the church. And may you in your walk with the Lord continually bear the fruit of gentleness, humility, patience, and love. That's what keeps the unity that Christ created when he tore down the wall. Can we do that, Shelton? Can we really be this kind of one church marked by humility and gentleness, bearing fruit, all of us bearing fruit, and all of us sharing the gift that God has given you? You are here for various purpose of God, and that gift that he has given you are meant to be shared for all of us. Do not just that love one another well by sharing it in humility really Shelton 
Love for those who are just like you is ordinary. Anybody can do that. Yet love for those who are unlike you is extraordinary. And love for those who dislike you is revolutionary. And guess who has done that? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ on the cross. We nailed him. We killed him. But his words are like justice. That's not what his words were. His words were, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus Christ loved us to death when we disliked him, when we killed him. And that love is revolutionary. And we are called to extend the same love. Can we be this kind of church? I hope and pray the Lord will continue to convict you and me and continue to make us one church under the headship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, after all that has been said and done, now first the thing that Paul, you call us to be, is truly be one church, mature church, by bearing the fruit of the Spirit and by sharing the gifts that you have given to each one of us. God, we acknowledge that this is such a lofty calling that we cannot do it on our own. Uh, so we look to you today, O oh Lord. We begin at the foot of the cross. We heard the fruit of the Spirit was at the max, par excellence. You are humble, gentle, even point of death. And you are patient and you are loving. You bled to redeem us. And now, at the cross of Jesus Christ, you descended. But through the chorus, the grace was extended. Now ascended king distributes the gift to all of us. I pray that we will share the gift that you have given to each of us. Not for us, not for our pride's sake, not for our recognition's sake, but for the flourishing of a whole body, to build up, to equip the body of Christ. Lord, would you give us the gospel humility and gospel generosity in a way that we share our gifts? We look to you for guidance, for we cannot do that on our own. Yet we pray this with a glorious hope. We know it is Christ, the saving grace has redeemed us, will continually carry us home. So God, we thank you for all you have done and all you are going to do. In your precious name we pray, amen.